plane looking. Oh wow! Whoa! But this can't. The path must be longer than this. This does. You know what I mean? Like you see pits, and this is like this is certainly there's a bit of sand, but I wouldn't say that's a pit of sand. I don't know. When does sand stop being just sand and become a pit? Hello. Uh, welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of the War of the Worlds. Um, I'm I'm recording outside. Uh, the the last maybe the last intro uh, certainly the last intro of the of the the novel the war of the worlds as this show has been uh, taking apart each chapter and adding in deep dives and and putting comedy songs in and inviting guests to this is uh this is it this is epilogue and i'm oh no there it is that big thing that's clearly sandy uh, but now i'm i'm at horse or common uh, with with the with the live version of the show on on tour at the moment, we're about to go to London uh, tomorrow. As I record this, standing maybe in one of the places where H.G. Wells uh, first got the idea for the book. Um, that feels like a very BBC documentary thing. Standing where he might have been. I mean, ultimately the general area. That's probably fine, isn't it? I don't have to find the exact footstep for anyone who's been. If you haven't been, it's uh, it's, it's it's a lot of trees. A lot of trees, a big sand pit, in the sand pit. Um, and I thought I'd record whilst sitting in the sand pit uh, for this, but it, it, is, it is every every five minutes about packed full of dogs, people walking their dogs. A weird way, but I hope, I hope a good way to, to, to end the story of the War of the Worlds in this podcast, being at the space outside, miles away from where I live, uh, recording in the real world. Um, I kept sitting down in, in the garage to try and record this intro and, and, and just kept putting it off because I didn't really know what to say. I don't know, part of me didn't want it to end, didn't want to finish it. Um, I think I've probably taken longer to make the podcast than Wells actually did to write the book. Um, but yeah, thank you so much everybody for, for listening and coming along with it and I, I hope you enjoy the final part. I've got a song in there that I've written. Um, and also got an interview with uh, the head of firearms, uh, the keeper of firearms, I think his name is, we'll find out later, um, at the at the Leeds Royal Armouries. So thank you very much to him for sitting down and talking to me and also showing me a, a mini cannon he had just in his office, which I think is probably what you'd want from a firearms expert. Um, and of course, the big thing is that we finished the, we finished the novel. Who knows what happens after this? Um, but thank you so much. Uh, if, if you've been listening since the start thank you so much for, for listening all the way through and if this is the first episode you have, uh, you have missed a bit actually uh, so maybe start at chapter 1 and work your way through or do like Memento listen to it backwards I don't know, maybe, that, maybe that's got a charm to it probably <laughs> seeing, seeing a man who's outside in the, in the actual real world gradually get uh, pushed more and more into a, a cupboard in his garage uh, that might be fun. Uh, that's up to you. You could do that however you want. But uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please do uh, like, share, and subscribe to it. And you can follow me on Instagram and wherever at edyhurst, um, where you can find out about uh, the Eddie Hurst comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version, by also was radio version, and Steven Spielberg's film version of the War of the Worlds tour, where that's going to next, and uh, where the the next live shows for it might be. Um, and also the new, the new show I'm working on, um, which I, I will be telling you all about uh, when I'm sure the inevitable podcast comes out alongside that. But right, let's get on with it. So uh, here we go. Here's the podcast. Here it is, uh, the epilogue. Attention, people of Solvers! 
Chapter 10 The Epilogue I cannot but regret, now that I am concluding my story, how little I am able to contribute to the discussion of the many debatable questions which are still unsettled. Yeah, very clever, we get it, it's not a complete account, but you know... In many ways, maybe uh, maybe this podcast isn't a complete account of all of the twists, the turns and the meanders of the War of the Worlds too. you know? Perhaps I can find some sort of comparison with the narrator. Dare I, dare I say it, that I'm, I'm, I'm relating to this man? I don't know, guys, I'll probably save that uh, revelation, or maybe, maybe to the end of the chapter, to make it, make it a bit more of an emotional hit uh, for, the, for the meta-narrative that's been going on here, yeah? Yeah? Great, let me make a note so I don't forget. In one respect, I shall certainly provoke criticism. My particular province is speculative philosophy. My knowledge of comparative physiology is confined to a book or two. But it seems to me that Carver's suggestions as to the reason of the rapid death of the Martians is so probable as to be regarded almost as proven conclusion. Greetings, it is me, the explaining lad. Top of the morning, governor. How do you do? Well, we're here on the last chapter, and I, I fear we're running out of things to explain, but uh, let's give it a go. Okay, Carver, his, his suggestion of physiology. Well, who is he? Uh, uh, let's have a little look. Um, if I search physiology Carver, uh, all that comes up is the, the, the book in, in my mind palace, and also George Washington Carver, the famous scientist, but of course... Uh, George Washington Carver would have been in his early to mid-twenties at this point and, 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 and had reached no level of, uh, of, no, of fame that H.G. Wells would have known about him to include in the book. Uh, <laughs> it's happened! We found something I can't explain! Oh, my story just made up a fake name to, to add a sort of depth to the, to the story. So that's, that's possible too. I don't know. We'll never, we'll never, never know. Uh, had a look in the, lots of biographies to see if he had any friends called Carver and it was a little in-joke. I uh, didn't find anything there. Uh, I'm going to be honest, it, it, it's a huge weight off my shoulders is the explaining lad to finally not be able to explain something. It's like Ozymandias uh, when there were no more kingdoms left to conquer. Now there are no more facts left to explain. What do I, what do I do? Mm. I just go beach, beach, something like that. I have assumed that in the body of my narrative. At any rate, in all the bodies of the Martians that were examined after the war, no bacteria except those already known as terrestrial species were found. That they did not bury any of their dead, and the reckless slaughter they perpetrated, point also to an entire ignorance of the putrefactive process. Okay, I'm back! That was a close one! Putrefactive process! It's uh, when things putrefy, so it's uh, the breaking down of uh, proteins and tissues and organs through uh, bacteria, through fungi, which is a type of uh, germ, an invisible body. Oh, it feels good to be back. <laughs> Can you believe I was going to go to the beach? <laughs>
gems, 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 Some people think they're gross, but they'll help you more than most. So I say let's raise a toast to they live in the soil, they live in the air, they more or less live anywhere. Sometimes they give us a mad health scare. It's Sure they've done us bad, and that's just yesterday. But they also help make cheese and keep Martian invaders away. These invisible assailants, they help preserve our lives, but their benefits could both ways. What are they like, tiny little metaphoric Let's have a thank you to germs across the world. Bacteria. Thanks. Uh, fungi. Delicious. Protozoa. I, not, not, not really that sure what you do. Viruses. Fuck off. Gems, gems. They live in your face and in your blood. Gems, gems. They're local singles in your neighborhood. Gems, They'll gems. never go away before we win and when we're all gone. They'll feed on your corpse, hooray! Hey! But probable as this seems, it is by no means a proven conclusion. Neither is the composition of the black smoke known, which the Martians used with such deadly effect, and the generator of the heat rays remains a puzzle. The terrible disasters at the Ealing and South Kensington laboratories have disinclined analysts for further investigations upon the latter. Spectrum analysis of the black powder points unmistakably to the presence of an unknown element with a brilliant group of three lines in the green. And it is possible that it combines with argon to form a compound which acts at once with deadly effect upon some constituent in the blood. Uh, I'm just getting proper flashbacks to uh, to that conversation we had um, about H.G. Wells' life. You know, when we found out that Winston Churchill was his, uh, was his mate. And this is the sort of thing which I think is why Winston liked him, because H.G. Wells is saying, like, Ah, they use some chemical to poison your blood and it was horrible and we better not do that and Churchill's like oh my god yeah I couldn't agree more what was that chemical they used though because that'd be I'd love to know just for no reason at all but such unproven speculation will scarcely be of interest to the general reader and to whom this story is addressed none of the brown scum that drifted down the Thames after the destruction of Shepperton was examined at the time and now none is forthcoming the results of an anatomical examination of the Martians, so far as the prowling dogs had left such an examination possible, I have already given, but everyone is familiar with the magnificent and almost complete specimen in spirits at the Natural History Museum, 
and the countless drawings that have been made from it. And beyond that, the interest of their physiology and structure is purely scientific. What a great idea, having like a Martian specimen in the Natural History Museum. Oh my god, that's so, that's such a nice way to tie that, um, the metaphor of the of the animals and being treated like animals in, and also it's a really good imagery. I think this might actually be my favourite chapter of the book. A question of graver and universal interest is the possibility of another attack from Martians. I do not think that nearly enough attention has been given to this aspect of the matter. At present, the planet Mars is in conjunction, but with every return to opposition, I, for one, anticipate a renewal of their adventure. In any case, we should be prepared. It seems to me that it should be possible to define the position of the gun from which the shots are discharged, to keep a sustained watch upon this part of the planet, and to anticipate the arrival of the next attack. Oh, I see. Even in Victorian times you've got writers eyeing themselves up for a sequel of their works. Ah, people never change. Oh, by the way, I can't wait to tell you about my next show that I've got- In that case, the cylinder might be destroyed with dynamite or artillery before it was sufficiently cool for the Martians to emerge, or they might be butchered by means of guns so soon as the screw opened. It seems to me that they have lost a vast advantage in the failure of their first surprise. Possibly they see it in the same light. So at this point, uh, now that there has been a mention of, uh, of weaponry, I wanted to introduce Jonathan Ferguson, uh, who very kindly came from the Royal Armouries to sit down with me uh, via Zoom and chat about uh, weaponry during War of the Worlds, uh, whether a little bit about the uh, conflict in, in taking amusement from conflict. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation and I've uh, edited down the highlights here. Let's get into it with John showing me a cannon he just has lying about his house and me asking the type of cannon, despite the fact I know no types of cannon. I've got a cannon on the floor next to me as well. What sort of cannon is it? Um, French, 18th century. It's a model one, so it's only, <laughs> it's only okay. yeah, big, but um, hefty nonetheless. A scale, scale cannon. That's, I mean, perfect for your job. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Um, please, could you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what it is that you do? Of course. Yep. Um, I'm Jonathan Ferguson. I'm Keeper of Firearms and Artillery for the Royal Armouries. Um, keeper, of, keeper of Firearms and Artillery is, I think, the fanciest title we've had for anyone on the show so far. So congratulations. Thank you. So what, what, does, that, what, what does that entail? My wife asks me the same question frequently. What do you do? Um, <laughs> you play with guns all day, don't you? <clears throat> well, that, that's perhaps a good day when that does happen. But um, keeper is, a, is a, a bit of an archaic term in museums these days, really. Although some of the British nationals do still have it. Um, we do occasionally um, shoot some things in the collection for research purposes, TV documentaries. People might have seen old one. Um, and for, for other purposes. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an unusual setup that we have. Um, the, the title, I, I must admit, I, I do enjoy the title. I was quite happy with Curator of Firearms. That was perfectly happy with, with you know, where I was with yeah. that and with that as a job title. And I must admit, although I should stress, I'm, I'm really not a specialist in artillery. Um, we have a curator for that. Um, I am a small arms specialist. but. I do, of course, I am, of course, interested in artillery and it sort of rounds out that job title quite nicely. 
Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have an and uh, <laughs> and another subject <laughs> smuggled in, isn't it? Uh, amazing. What is your um, what's your favorite piece of? So I'm ge- I'm guessing that every, every that's all firearms in the collection is your cover. So it's from from the very first sort of guns to to like what what comes in from amnesties. Um, that's right. And what what of that do you think is sort of your favourite or maybe the most memorable one in in your experience? It, it's always a difficult one. Yeah. Um, I mean, favourites maybe not the right phrase for. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, off the top of my head, um, the the very first two numbered things because everything in the museum has a number, as I'm sure people will be aware, um, especially yeah, you. Sure. Um, very first two numbered things so class 12 which is firearms and it has been since um at least 1914 uh class 12 1 and 2 are henry VIII's own personal guns small arms wow um they call them that's amazing an arquebus technically um like a little musket well not that little in one case and they are they're they're fascinating not not only for the personal sort of royal connection but um in relatively good condition, as you might expect. Yeah, sure. So is that for is that like a recreational gun? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, probably based on the configure. Well, one's a bit lighter, and in fact, that that may even be the first English small arm firearm. There are many others. Um, in fact, I'll give you one more that's relevant to this to this podcast, if that's all right. Yeah, please do. Which is the brilliantly named Blanche Chevalier Grenade Discharger. Ooh, hello. Which you must go away and Google straight after this. I have an article on it. Make, making a note immediately. And it looks as steampunky as it sounds. When people think of War of the Worlds, they think of Victorian soldiers, probably in scarlet tunics with yeah. white helmets, which is probably not accurate, actually. Um, and uh, perhaps Martini Henry rifles, also not accurate, right. but um, but nonetheless, that that might be the sort of era you're thinking of. 1880s is more would be more correct. It's funny to try and place War of the Worlds because some people seem to think it's set in the future, like when from when he was writing, it was set in the future. Considering how much effort he goes to describing the Martians' weapons, yeah, you, it's quite hard to get a grasp of how to picture the because he mentions the cardigan men. Uh, yeah. Which in my head, I just think of men in quite comfortable knitwear, <laughs> uh, which I'm pretty sure is not who he had in mind. The reason I the reason I uh, preempted that was that this this weapon I'm talking about is half Martini Henry, yeah. so the, the back half is out of Zulu. Okay, and then the front half is a grenade launching. Wow. Okay. Tube. Yeah. And it, it's actually First World War, but um, it really does look like some alt history. Yeah, absolutely. Boomstick. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And there's a and there's a fascinating story attached to do with the the inventor who got scammed out of his money oh, no. by a sort of moustache twirling villain. <laughs> <as well. laughs> Even though it's the early twentieth century peak Victorian drama. Yeah. So I should have said that one, but they, you've got two for one there. No, bo- for both are great. Clear, like as, as fan base and as the legacy of War of the Worlds, I think that is where people's minds gravitate to is the 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 battles, which there is a lot of other things surrounding it, but the battles are certainly the most the most thrilling parts. And I guess my question is that from from your experience as somebody that is the keeper of firearms and artillery um, at the armories, how do you present weaponry and tools of war and sort of discuss war in a way that isn't 
glorifying it because mm. I, de- you know, like at, at the end of the day, these are incredibly incredible pieces of engineering with intricacy and fascinating stories. But at the same time, their main purpose is to kill people, or maybe that's a reductive way to say it. Perhaps, but it's it's certainly true. You know, this is um, it, one way or another. All of these things come from trying to damage things. You know, even if it's a pure target, yeah, rifle or something. You know, never intended to hit a person or an animal. It, the technology was developed to kill people. There's something I I, I call um, jolly pirate syndrome, <laughs> which which is which is the distance of time, yeah, and subjects that have been or, or people groups of people contexts that have been trivialised um, by popular culture and all of that <laughs> to the extent where they feel harmless. Yeah. So a flintlock yeah. pistol blowing someone's brains out. Well, you don't really think about it blowing someone's brains out. It's more it's more of a fun prop. Yeah. And, oh, look at that. And it only fires one shot. And it's probably not very accurate. Probably not even lethal, yeah. you know. But, of course, it's, that's completely untrue. They're, they're just, in their own way, in context, not, not you know, much less lethal now yeah, sure. on, on the of today, but in context, just as yeah, lethal. Absolutely. And purpose is the same. Some examples of how we've tried to, to grasp that nettle, uh, that there's a lot more to do. Uh, and when we get the chance to do a, a larger section of of gallery, I, I hope we do yeah. tackle that, and I hope we tackle it in the in the more historical context as well. Um, something that that springs to mind, people can check out if they can find the clip. When we worked with the History Channel yeah. on Sean Bean's Waterloo, we got again we did some shooting for that to demonstrate some effects. And although it was just gelatin, uh, ballistic gelatin blocks. We put a forensic bone simulant in in the middle of sure. the block, um, and and I, I've you know I've a bit of experience with this stuff, and I've you know seen the effects of of, of these things forensically, yeah. and yet being the one to pull the trigger on this two hundred year old brown bass, original brown bass, loaded to the correct specification and all of that, and seeing that that massive bullet smash through the quote unquote flesh. Yeah and through the bone and shatter the bone into shards, which then get driven into the tissue. That was quite sobering. And that's a genuine, if you see that clip, that's a genuine reaction. People can see that in the gallery if they can't find it elsewhere. It's really interesting. And we see Sean Bean shoot a, shoot a musket and uh, react to Sean Bean not getting shot for once. What a treat for him as well. Exactly. <laughs> um, as, as from the point of view of somebody who's who's always grown up in a in a society in britain where guns and firearms are very much something of the military and of sort of um the state whereas in the book um there's there's a lot of mention as people are trying to get out of london of having revolvers just as a casual thing carrying a revolver um and so for me that was quite but then of course other other countries that aren't particularly different from us in many other respects it's a standard part of life still most probably this this is a bold claim but i'd say most of the countries in the world um allow would allow you to at least possess something like that sure carrying it in public is another matter and that's often restricted in some way even even in places like the states that you know depending on the state and and we see this throughout history and we also see the attempts to restrict that throughout history so even when carrying a sword was essentially part of your daily dress as a um, gentleman, um, it's a whole other aspect you could get into there. But um, even then, uh, there's, there's a. This is not my area, but there's a fascinating case in Elizabethan England of rapiers, which were the sort of 
defaults all the time. Yeah. Getting ever longer and more impressive because it wasn't just about defending yourself or your honor. That's the other reason. Carrying <laughs> a very, a weapon. very macho uh, yeah. development. Oh, very macho. Yeah, all sorts of implications there. <laughs> getting ever longer and longer. And there was actually a restriction yeah. to reduce the length because they were getting so long. People were getting poked with them and they were getting in the way. Oh, right. And as a result sure. of that, we have a uh, an amazing uh, sword in the collection that is extending. So you could bring it in oh, wow. to the sort of city limits legally at the right length, and then you yeah. could slide the blade out. For all I know, it's made as a joke, but it reflects the actual restrictions. So, and the restrictions are fascinating, um, especially around firearms, because it's nearly always about the economically and socially privileged classes retaining control of this new technology. That was um, that's I, I did a I did a, a deep dive in one episode on the gun laws of the time sort of be like well why why is this so casual and it's yeah like like you're saying you know I, i'm sure you know much better than me whilst you could go out and buy it to actually have the money to do it you would you would have to be of a fairly particular social standing and fairly well off to be able to afford a revolver to carry one around in the first place well th that's a fascinating point actually because the answer is yes but also no <laughs> um you until oh right when when things until we get mass production in full swing as a technology, you know, as a series of techno set of technologies to make things cheaper and easier to make. Yes, that's true. Well, even a Colt revolver famously mass produced, but you know, to a large extent still hand fitted together, quite an expensive thing, but nonetheless, that's where we start to see yeah. ranchers in Wyoming. Uh, well, maybe ranchers is probably the wrong, wrong shot, but a cowboy, a literal cowboy working a ranch in, in Wyoming can afford a Colt revolver. Right. Okay. Couldn't have afforded say the british equivalent because it was entirely handmade sure so by 1890 something we've reached a point where and these even come up in amnesties and things uh mass produced and they needn't even be super precise modern mass produced just oh wow uh belgium belgium turns out so uh, a mixture of everything from the best guns finely made shotguns and things to yeah. real cheap nasty affordable self-defense revolvers and they're still wow. around and still potentially functional a hundred odd years later so by the time frame of war of the worlds yeah the revolver that, that the lady is uh um yeah. talking about in the book that's probably quite a nice one but the 1890s is the era of the affordable handgun and and where we start to see states going oh hang on uh, everyone and their mums can suddenly pack a gun. What do we do about that? Uh, this is my final question uh, for you, which is uh, just, you clearly know War of the Worlds. Uh, what's your relationship to the book? I I came to, sort of the main reason I came to reading the book was actually from Jeff Wayne's musical version. Um, and then I realised I'd never read the book before. And so the podcast was born. My story overlaps a bit with you, really. I'd say I, I'm probably, it, it's one that I constantly return to. Uh, my first my first exposure would have been as a kid to the fifties, yeah, um, version. The the um, awesome the, well the the film the film yeah yeah with the with the floaty uh, non tripod war machines yes. which the, I... the iconic sound and look so that 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 struck me and the idea of the whole concept of something coming from if not Mars then space so, so that that was probably my sort of revelation there but then I I failed myself and like you perhaps didn't actually get my hands yeah. on the book until much later sure. and i'm talking last year i didn't i didn't read the novel until last year and that's terrible 
you're, no, you're, you're, I think you, we could probably follow your timeline of reading with the exact same time as we as listeners are all reading it too. <laughs> so I, I got that, I got that right. And it, it, I don't know why it's one of these things. I think it's a bit, I, I compare it to having a museum or a heritage site down the road in your town. Yeah, of course. And you go, oh, we'll go, we'll go to it eventually. You know, it's always going to be there. Uh, meanwhile, there's this new exciting thing. Uh, yeah. to, so I just put it off and put it off. Yeah. And then and my wife's got me a nice uh, modern leather bound. It's the collection of, of Wells. Oh, very nice. Stories. I also yeah. love the time machine. And again, came, yeah. came to that story relatively late as well. Um, but once, uh, even before, well before I read the book, I did get fascinated with, again, with the, the potential for adaptations. And every few years I would have a hunt around and go, has anyone done a proper Victorian or Edwardian uh, staging or yeah. film production, TV production, comic book mm. of what it would be like to see Victorian soldiers and warships fight Martian war machines. And the answer was always, no, they haven't, or <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> sometimes even bad media can have a positive effect because it's yeah. you to seek out or revisit the good versions. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, always fascinated by the potential for what are now to us antiquated weapons, but uh, to the Victorians are the latest cutting edge technology. How would those stack up, you know, do, do, and then it's also interesting in the adaptations, how they don't really follow the book. Um, if Even if they follow the setting, they, they tend yeah. to show things as even more hopeless. What a lot of adaptations do lose is, um, is that the idea that there's so many chapters that is not about a Martian invasion. It's about people responding to that. But as you were saying, sorry, Jonathan. I'm pretty much a fan of the 2005 version because it's very loose, but it does nail some of the major beats of some hopelessness, some hope. Yeah. Um, the you know a, a nice design for the war machines. <laughs> um, the yeah, so that a bit, a bit like the 53 version. It's yeah. um, of its time taking those ingredients and running with them. And it's funny yeah, that when they do try and cleave to the original story, it goes wrong because it's not the only unsuccessful adaptation. Yeah. Uh, but I'd, I'd say that there are elements of that that are, that are worth watching it for. And then it kind of goes off the rails after the first third. Um, but the thing, the thing I would recommend, which you mm. can see and people can't. Yes. Is something I mentioned, I think. Um, yeah, Mike did. Brunson. This is the War of the Worlds, the Anglo-Martian War of 1895. And it's in the Dark Osprey series of books. And it's a, a fantasy version of one of these little military history books that Osprey are known for that focuses on kit, weapons, vehicles, right. soldiers. Uh, but it's actually, it's got a lot more sort of personal story stuff in there than you might think. So that's really good. Sure. And the other one is that really amazing history channel faux documentary which is the okay. best thing the history channel had done for a long time at that point um the the great martian war okay which again is it's it's done as um a retrospective documentary several you know in the modern era interviewing the few surviving people that took part only their actors ah, brilliant yeah experienced it experts um yeah. the, there's the imperial war museum only outside is not some 16 inch guns it's a martian tripod wow yeah it is brilliant amazing well thank you so much this has been great 
Lessing has advanced excellent reasons for supposing that the Martians have actually succeeded in effecting a landing on the planet Venus. Seven months ago now, Venus and Mars were in alignment with the Sun. That is to say, Mars was in opposition from the point of view of an observer on Venus. Subsequently, a peculiar luminous and sinuous marking appeared on the unilluminated half of the inner planet. And almost simultaneously, a faint dark mark of a similar sinuous character was detected upon a photograph of the Martian disk. One needs to see the drawings of these appearances in order to appreciate fully their remarkable resemblance in character. I don't know what's worse, the threat that the Martians are coming back, or that they've been too timing us with Venus! We know enough here! And I thought I didn't like them before! At any rate, whether we expect another invasion or not, our views of the human future must be greatly modified by these events. We have learnt now that we cannot regard this planet as being fenced in and a secure abiding place for man. We can never anticipate the unseen good or evil that may come upon us suddenly out of space. It may be that in the larger design of the universe, this invasion from Mars is not without its ultimate benefit for men. It has robbed us of that serene confidence in the future which is the most fruitful source of decadence. The gifts to human science it has brought are enormous, and it has done much to promote the conception of the common wealth of mankind. I mean, he strikes again with a top idea that, like, it's it, it brought humanity together with all of the squabbles and the wars that they had beforehand have been put aside in the face of a larger enemy. Uh, I don't know if any, anybody has uh, read the comics Watchmen or watched the TV series about it, so I don't want to give you spoilers, but um, obviously Alan Moore is, is, is clearly, as we know from the Extraordinary League of Gentlemen, a fan of H.G. Wells and War of the Worlds, so undoubtedly you can see that this, this, this idea clearly planted the seed in his head too. Or, um, or he ripped it off. I don't know, what's the more, what's the more attention-grabbing thing? Let's say he stole it. He stole it. It may be that across the immensity of space, the Martians have watched the fate of these pioneers of theirs and learnt their lesson, and that on the planet Venus, they may have found a secure settlement. Be that as it may, for many years yet, there will certainly be no relaxation of the eager scrutiny of the Martian disk. And those fiery darts of the sky, the shooting stars, will bring with them, as they fall, an unavoidable apprehension to all the sons of men. The broadening of men's views that has resulted can scarcely be exaggerated. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. If the Martians can reach Venus, there is no reason to suppose that the thing is impossible for men. And when the slow cooling of the sun makes this earth uninhabitable, as at last it must do, it may be that the thread of our life that has begun here will have streamed out and caught our sister planet within its toil. That's great. What's the solution to a problem on our planet? Invade another, but we'll call it a sister planet. I don't... I don't... I, I mean, that's got to be on purpose from, from Wells, right? That, do you think that's a bit of dramatic irony? Maybe? I mean, on the other hand, the sun is exploding, so I guess what option do you have? Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of the side real space. But that is a remote dream. It may be, on the other hand, that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them, and not to us, perhaps, is the future ordained. 
I don't know if he's doing it on purpose, but he is leaving the back door wide open for a sequel, isn't he? I mean, he clearly never made one, but the, the Wells estate did, did authorise an official sequel, and there have been countless unofficial sequels, so uh, I, I feel like there's probably a PhD, uh, or at least an MA, in, in researching wh- whether this is what created the... Uh, the idea of uh, of leaving sci-fi things deliberately open. But I ain't doing it! I must confess, the stress and danger of the time have left an abiding sense of doubt and insecurity in my mind. I sit in my study, writing by lamplight, and suddenly I see again the healing valley below set with writhing flames, and feel the house behind and about me empty and, and desolate. I go out into the Byfleet Road, and vehicles pass me. A butcher boy in a cart, a cab full of visitors, a workman on a bicycle, children going to school. Little bit of a callback to the listing of everyone he saw at Horsell Common, isn't it? Uh, is it? I don't know, have I just noticed that he's also done a list? It could be either! Let's say it is. And suddenly they become vague and unreal, and I hurry again with the artilleryman through the hot, brooding silence. Of a night, I see the black powder darkening the silent streets and the contorted bodies shrouded in that layer. They rise upon me, tattered and dog-bitten. They gibber and grow fiercer, paler, uglier, mad distortions of humanity at last, and I awake cold and wretched in the darkness of the night. I go to London and see the busy multitudes in Fleet Street and the Strand and it comes across my mind that they are but the ghosts of the past, haunting the streets that I have seen silent and wretched, going to and fro, phantasms in a dead city, the mockery of life in a galvanised body. He's not writing about a nice thing, but oh my god is he writing about it in a nice way. This is popping. It's great. I mean, it's not, but it is. You know? You know what I mean? You know what I mean. And strange. Too. It is to stand on Primrose Hill, as I did but a day before writing this last chapter, to see the great province of houses, dim and blue through the haze of the smoke and mist, vanishing at last into the vague lower sky, to see the people walking to and fro among the flower beds on the hill, to see the sightseers about the Martian machine that stands there still, to hear the tumult of playing children and to record the time when I saw it all bright and clear-cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day. He truly is a changed man by what he's experienced, and I I suppose we all change in our own ways through life, uh, through giant things that that affect our, our whole generation that we might not even be aware of. I don't know what I could be thinking of there. Um, I mean, could I... Dare I say that I, I, I'm, I'm relating to this man? Nah, not yet. I'll do, I'll do a big thing towards the end that'll really tie this all together in a, in, a, in a real tidy narrative. And strangest of all is to hold my wife's hand again and to think that I have counted her and that she has counted me among the dead. Wow. I mean, this is it. This is the... We, it, it, it feels so weird to have, have uh, completed the book. 
I mean, we've been on a heck of a narrative journey, right? I mean, obviously, like, of course, there's been an invasion and then there's been a defeat of those Martians by pure chaos and chance, and that in itself is its own journey. But I kind of feel like as, as listeners as well, you know, I came into this with completely different expectations of what came out of the book. I was expecting to find something with potentially outdated points of view, uh, with dense floral language about ideas that, that now just seem like technology has, has, has gotten rid of. But actually, that's not true. You know, like, uh, the, the story still deals with topics relevant nowadays. Um, and, and look at when I started recording this. Germs closed everything down, right? And I think that's what one of the things that's so great about the book is that it, it's these... He's dealing with... Um, and I think that's one of the things that's so great about this book and, and Wells as a, as a science fiction writer, I guess, is that he, um, he, he, he thinks about scientific breakthroughs, but he always couches them in, in sort of what that means for society and the civilization we live in, rather than just the novelty of the invention. Or at least that's my opinion of it. I was listening to an interesting, uh, an interesting interview with uh, Steven Spielberg and James Cameron, where uh, Steven Spielberg was saying he was unhappy with the ending of of his film, and and James Cameron said, "Well, you know, the source material uh, probably didn't help you." Um, and I guess he kind of has a point in terms of like in the way that we consume stories at the moment is that there isn't like a there isn't a, it's not like a discovery inside the narrator that that saves us. It's not an invention of mankind. It it, it it's pure chance and it's pure chaos and it despite that we keep returning to this story we keep returning to this book in so many different forms and formats and i think it really speaks to the fact that whilst we have preconceptions of what formats of stories are uh, there's there's so, so much other stuff that goes on in the way that we consume art and the way that we consider creative things uh, this is me putting my sincere hat on uh, if, if anyone was wondering what hat i was wearing here you know not everything has to have a three-act structure not everything has to be the hero's journey it can be different it can be pure chaos you know it, it, in many ways it's a lot like Vonnegut um in that uh, it, it's just turned it, it's just been pure chance is the only reason you know it reminds me actually of Sirens of Titan quite a bit um, I don't know if anyone uh, with a keen ear has listened but I have peppered references to Kurt Vonnegut throughout this series so uh, if anybody has that much spare time or that much willing I'm sure you could find a mega mix of all the times I've, I've, I've quoted it, a little breadcrumb trail for you there because yes I did have a lot of time on my hands whilst I made this. Can you tell? And maybe to, to analyse myself a little bit through this, maybe one of the reasons why War of the Worlds uh, speaks so much to me is because it is this story that um, it, it, it might not follow follow all of the formal rules of what makes a great narrative, and yet people are still fascinated by it. People still love it. You guys listening to this clearly have an interest in it. And as somebody who I often feel like I don't fit into the, into the mainstream without good deal of work maybe maybe that maybe that's quite reassuring for me as a creator that as long as something's interesting and engaging there's value in it for 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 humanity i hope i hope you've enjoyed it and found it as fascinating and interesting as i have um and for those of you that have been listening from the start thank you so much and for everyone who carries on it's such a privilege to 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 know that people are, are enjoying this mad project that's uh, mostly recorded in a garage un until I go on, 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 a, on a tour with a live version of the show. And with that in mind, please do come see the show. Uh, it's on this Sunday, uh, from point of listening, if you're in the Northwest UK area. Um, Northwest UK area. What a weird... Well, 
I've said it now. Um, in at the Lowry in Salford on the 4th of June, that's this Sunday, Eddie Hurst comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version by Rawls Wells' radio version and Steven Spielberg's film version of The War of the Worlds. There's also a couple more dates that are going to be announced. Um, I'm doing a return to Buxton Fringe and also uh, something coming up that I can't mention yet, but is happening. Um, so if you're around, come, come see them. Uh, I just wanted to thank everybody who has been listening uh, and also all of the guests on the podcast uh, what a wide range of uh, comedians uh, who in the space of time have been nominated for the biggest awards in uk comedy uh, through to people who have uh, academics who've published books of groundbreaking research i mean it's such an honor to have everybody uh, join me somebody's even started wrestling uh, one of the comedians so thank you to my wife and to my daughter uh, my wife is supporting me making this and my daughter just knocking around she didn't really do much to be involved i mean i did try and get her to do some editing but she wasn't uh, she, she just she just wasn't really that interested in it I mean she was between the ages of one to two but still rude thank you also to Ichabod Wolf for letting me use the theme tune uh, that you hear that's from his album Carry On Crow and all of his stuff's amazing I just used a, a bit of the instrumental part of his songs but he's got an incredible voice uh, his music's amazing go check it all out it's all on Bandcamp and also thank you to Jason Cook for the fantastic electronic music we've heard in the second part of this of this series um, thank you so much please if you want to follow me uh, I'm at E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and everywhere and let me know what you want from here on in uh, we could um, let me know do you want do you want another book do you want more more deep dives into different versions of War of the Worlds? Uh, let me know, guys. Let me know. Um, you can also find me at eddiehurst.co.uk um, where you can find out live show information and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, this is this is it. Thanks thanks very much. I think we're all, we're all done for now. Wait, no, I was meant to do a callback to emotionally resonating with the narrator now or something. Ah, this is going to be... Ah, it's not going to follow a standard narrative arc.